0: So we're looking at um, Galatians, well, we're starting 3.23, which is on page 811. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. To the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir.
1: Brilliant. Well, this is the uh, last in our series, I think number seven in our series, looking at the book of Galatians. We haven't quite finished the book, and so we may we may come back to it at uh, another time. We'll do keep the passage that we looked at. Uh, open in front of you, and we're going to have a chat at the tables uh, in about 10 minutes or so. To recap, we have been looking at the book Galatians, which was a letter written by the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago to a church which he had founded, which was drifting from the foundational truths that he had left with them. The church consisted of two groups, uh, Jewish Christians and secular Christians. Christians, each group endeavouring to move forward into maturity in their faith and they were getting into a muddle in terms of their religious practices and their heritage and what was helping them move forward and what wouldn't. And Paul writes to them to readdress them in the truth. He wants them to re-experience afresh the message of Jesus because this is the only thing that's going to make sense of their two disparate cultures and then together bring them in a united group to be able to move forward in their maturity. He wants them to know that in Jesus, all things have changed. That it's as if Jesus is the faith upgrade, and it's now God 2.0. And they need to be fully up to date. And he's checking that everyone is running the new faithware, that everybody is up to date. The old faithware was the law, and the law was like a kind of early-release operating system. It sort, of, it sort of did all the things that it was meant to, but it didn't quite fully deliver. And yet it sort of, in using it, it almost pointed you towards the better, the working properly operating system that would yet to come, even though you hadn't quite yet seen it. Jesus is the new operating system. With all the features upgraded, with all the bugs fixed, and with all the things that you thought, oh, if only it could work as good as this, that's what they're experiencing by putting their faith in Jesus. Well, as we look at this passage, I want to look at three big headings that jumped out at me as I was looking at it. And the first is this idea of being confined under the law. In verse 23 and 24, it says this Now, before the faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith could be revealed. So the law was our custodian until Christ came. This word custodian conveys the uh, idea, the imagery of a faithful servant in the household whose responsibility was to look after a son from, from the nursery time up until the point when he entered, in effect, what we would say teenage years, and for them a technical beginning of manhood. And the um, custodian would govern the child's behaviour until the child reached that point of maturity. He would teach the child what to do, what was right, what the rules are and what the manners were. He was a custodian or a a tutor or a a schoolmaster, a stern schoolmaster who brought instruction. But he was a a picture of the law. He was limited in what he could do because although he could bring all the correct things that needed to happen, he didn't have any power to bring influence. He didn't have any ability to make the child's heart good or to want to do the things that the child needed to do. And neither was he able to uh, offer to the child the inheritance that was in a sense theirs as they grew into maturity into the family. This idea is a picture of how the law had worked for thousands of years for the Jewish people, the people of Israel. It had provided them with direction, but it also given them restraint, it held them back. It prescribed the way that mature people behaved, but it didn't impart to them that new nature that, the, that, that that way of behaviour called for. Neither did it pass on to them the fruit and the benefits, the inheritance that was kind of given to them through that promise. According to Hebrews 4, it says that the reason they never fully got everything that they wanted is because the law for them was never fully mixed with faith. And this idea of faith is a strong theme in the book of Galatians. It's something that, that the writer really wants them to get their head around. Faith is the mark of maturity that he's calling them to. Something that the law prescribed but not something that the law was able to give to the people of Israel. The law had instructed youthful Israel in how to live a life of faith but in a sense their response was youthful and adolescent and rebellious. And if you read any of the Old Testament history books and follow the story of the people of Israel, you'll see for the most part that uh, Israel never entered into the fullness of what was promised for them. And they never, uh, in a sense, humbled themselves before God in order to receive everything that he had. The prophet Jeremiah described their predicament by saying it's like this. It's as if God needs to take away our blindness and he needs to reach inside of us. And take away a stony heart and give us a flesh heart that feels who God is. And the law works for us today in the same way. If you don't have a heart that's trusting in God, and you're not looking to God's mercy and relying on that, then following God feels like a burdensome and offensive, deadening job description given by a harsh harsh schoolmaster. If you have a heart to trust God and rely on his mercies, then the law can feel like a much-needed uh, prescription from a wise and beloved physician. What the law is for you depends upon how you engage with the lawgiver. 1 John five three says this, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome so for for Israel, for the people of Israel for the Jewish people of history the law was by and large a a burdensome job description where they had to carve out with hard effort uh, minuscule blessings from God and on the whole it was not something that they engaged with with faith the second thing that, that jumps out in this passage is this phrase but faith has now come. Verse 25 says this, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the custodian. So so faith comes and releases us from that schoolmaster-ish relationship with God. Now, when he says, faith has come, I don't think he means that before Christ, no one believed in God. No one had faith in God. It's not as if, Faith got invented at that moment. After all, Abraham, thousands of years ago, at the beginnings of the Bible, we'll look at him in a few weeks' time, Abraham is called the father of faith who believed God. If you read the Psalms, you'll read references to uh, people of faith, men of faith and women of faith. The book of Romans refers to people of old who, were, who had faith apart from Hebrews 11 lists a biography of people who we are told are believers who believed God with faith. So what this phrase, faith has come, I think refers to the fact that it's as if in Jesus a moment has come when there is a sudden release of people experiencing God by faith that uh, large numbers of people in contrast to the the many of Israel who were in a sense hard-hearted in in the era of Christ it's as if an open door of faith is opened by God by which people can experience and respond to God and the invitation opens wide it includes all the people of the Jewish history but all all the secular people all the people of the other nations the Gentiles that they're referred to all are uh, brought in and offered the experience of this faith. And when the law was preached of old, it was often not received by faith. But when Jesus is preached, people receive faith. That's our experience today. That's, uh, that's our experience as we read the Bible. Faith has come means that God is fulfilling ancient promises Words spoken thousands and thousands of years ago that he's going to come and give people new hearts and new experiences of God. And the third thing that I want to look at is the idea of being united to Christ. People who believe in Jesus become children of God. And in fact, if you scan the the book of Galatians, looking for the imagery that Paul uses, and he uses many images to illustrate what he's trying to convey, the idea of being a child of God is the main image that he wants to leave us with. If if we are to imagine, what is my relationship with God like? It's like this. It's like becoming God's child by adoption. So Jesus was the social worker who brought you to God the Father to be adopted. He is the one that reached out to you, whether you look good or bad, whether you look like you're in need or whether your life was desperate and needed amazing help. He was the intermediary who came to you and brought you to God the Father so that you could be adopted. So now every other person who believes in the world is now your brother and your sister. That makes birthdays and Christmas really expensive. And to belong to Christ is to be a child of God with all of the privileges that are implied through that relationship. And in fact, in this passage that we've read, it's, it's, it's almost a restating of what he says in verse 29 when he says this, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So to be a descendant of Abraham, this ancient idea of what it meant to be one of God's people, and to be a child of God are the same idea. This would have been a powerful thought in the Galatian church because each of those ways of looking at it would have made sense in a different way to each of them. The Greeks would have understood the idea of adopting. It It's a common thing in Greek culture to, to adopt. If a family didn't have children, they would adopt a servant and the servant would be upgraded from servant low privileges, n- no prospects to incredibly import- important, representing the family, inheriting everything that the family has, the name and the honor that goes with it and For the Jews, the idea of being a child of Abraham and an inheritor of the promises of Abraham would have been something they understood from all their understanding of their Jewish history and the old. Testament, And one of the great things about God's worldwide church is that our racial and social and gender status now doesn't in any way affect our standing with God. So he puts it like this in verse 28. So now, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Woe to the person in the Galatian church who thinks that because they're a Jew they have a higher status than the secular convert who sits beside them in church. Or the person that thinks that because uh, they are a slave, they are less than the free person who is also in their church. Or the person that thinks because they're a man and, and they're full of the imagery of the Old Testament and what it means to be a man in Jewish culture, because they imagine if they're a man, therefore they have an elevated status before God. All those things that might divide us, and probably many others as well, are now leveled, because we're all equally brought to Christ. The Greeks and the Jews are united. This was what divided the church. Some of them thought, well, because... Because we've got a bigger heritage than you. Because we've got all the Old Testament as our heritage. Surely, you know, we've got the, you know, we've got the slightly elevated status. You guys who are from the Greek culture, you've only just come into this church. So, so you know, you're the you're the students, and we're the teachers. No, both are level. In fact, one of the things I found is actually sometimes you can find out most about the faith you have when you speak to people who have faith from another culture. And you learn how they have experienced their relationship with God and how they read the Bible and how they do the church. And and often it's through that you realise that's amazing. And it's not that the way we do it's better or the way that you, you do it's better. It's we can learn more about our common faith in God through understanding each other. The slaves and the free are united. This probably didn't mean slavery in the way that we understand slavery today it was probably more like the idea of being in service it was probably you know the kind of low it was probably more like a class system maybe like the Victorian idea that you were in service because you had no other prospects so you would be in service and you would work for a family and you you wouldn't be important you wouldn't probably have many rights you and you would You might not get paid a lot or whatever, you would just be sort of a low part of that family infrastructure. You would be a bond servant. And the comparison is made that the slaves or the free people are now brought together. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're this class or that class or another class or whatever background you come from, you are now standing equally before God. And also that men and women are brought equal before God. And this would have been a revelation for the Jewish Christians who would have understood that it was kind of primogeniture, it was about men first. Men were taught the scriptures, men went to the synagogue, Uh, boys that came of age sat with the men on their side of the synagogue. They were the ones that read the scriptures and debated the theology. And uh, boys that reached a certain age were considered adult, women were not considered adult until they were married and they left their parents' family. The gospel now levels that. Interestingly, in our culture, it's almost the other way around. If you look at the stats for church attendance, church is something that women do and not many men do. Uh, now, actually, G2, we're pretty 50-50, actually, which I'm really proud of. That's really good. But I know, I know many... Uh, I travel around and meet other churches. I know many churches, the ratio is more like 60-40. 60% women, 40% men. Women often see the church as something that is for them, something they want to engage with. And now in our culture it's, it's men who are almost the ones that feel excluded because they don't feel that's something for them. So when Christ admits us into his faith community, every ground by which we might seek to put ourselves down or lift ourselves up is eliminated because we all rest Equally, on the grace of Christ. As Paul now continues what he's saying, and he moves into chapter 4, the thing he wants this church to get a hold of is that he wants them to move forward and not back. He wants them to move into and experience more of the freedom that they're getting through Jesus. And he wants them to move away from the slavery and the constraints that they experienced in their former lives. Uh, Verse 8, he puts it like this. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were in bondage to beings beings that by nature are no gods. So Paul reserves the the, the word God for the one true God that he's talking about. But he, he wants them to understand that it's as if... Uh, their former lives, they were, they were enslaved by things that were gods. There's a good question. Do you have any false gods in your life? Do you have any demons in your life? In some cultures, these things are depicted as objects or statues that you might have in your home. They're referred to as gods, uh, and that would be part of the culture or a different uh, religion. In In other cultures, they're expressed through... Uh, superstitions or even uh, religious traditions. In other cultures they are just ideas or um, idols or things that we idolise. But all of them are false gods, says Paul, if they take us away from following Jesus Christ. And the danger they were facing as believers seeking to move on in their faith is that they might actually turn back and become enslaved again, having tasted the freedom that they were getting by experiencing Jesus. One translation of verse 9 puts it like this, uh, that you um, are engaging with weak and beggarly elemental spirits whose slaves you want to be once again. And verse 8 that we just read suggests that this bondage to The law, as a job description, is really bondage to demons and false gods. When you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. And the the astonishing thing in this passage is that Paul is saying to the Galatian Christians that they're in danger of going back to the slavery of their former uh, pagan religion. And they were in danger also of doing that by going into the heritage of the Jews in order to sort of enrich their faith. Two groups were equally in danger of, in a sense, uh, welcoming in false gods into their lives because they were looking back into their past practices rather than moving forward into what Christ had for them. Well, what's the antidote? Well, actually, we will need to come back to Sirius to find some more of the things that he says. But the thing he concludes this section with is the idea of prayer. And he uses an idea of prayer as, as a way of understanding all that he's said to them in, in the sense of the flow of the argument of understanding their position and relationship before God. And in verse um, chapter 4, verse 6, he refers to um, God as Abba, Abba, and he uses an Aramaic word which uh, in English is transliterated Abba and uh, in Aramaic means uh, f- dear father or daddy. It's a word of, it's a word of intimacy. It's, it's the way you'd refer to your, the parent that you loved at home but you wouldn't necessarily use that in public because it would be a bit too you know, friendly and familiar but it would be, it'd be the affectionate way in which you'd refer to your parent. And in using the word in Aramaic Um, Paul is hinting at the idea that this is how Jesus prayed. Because Jesus spoke in Aramaic. There was no point using that word in this Greek culture. He could have used a Greek word to talk about praying to God. But instead he uses a word that would have reminded them that actually Jesus prayed to God. And we know Jesus, um, through the Gospels, many of the things that we have him quoted saying were said in Aramaic. It would have been uh, his first Language. And so Jesus gives the example of talking to God as a dear father. And the suggestion is that this is the thing that separates us from being children of God or slaves. A slave will refer to God in, in formal and technical words, they will, they will be distant from God in their prayer, a personal prayer and adoration. Um, but someone who understands that they're a child of God, or put it this way, somebody who is engaging with, understanding, entering into knowing what being a child of God is, will, will feel the freedom to speak to God as Abba, Father.